Authority is a funny thing. It is an exercise in power. And as such, the obvious and much-asked questions about it are those such as, where does it come from? And what establishes authority? What maintains it? Of course, when talking about authority figures or institutions, this whole thing has been done to death on multiple levels, multiple times, in multiple places. Reasonably, we should talk here about the Milgram experiment, the willingness of individuals to cause perceived pain to other individuals based on submitting to the demands of an authority figure. And then at some point, the Nazis would come up, and we can all continue to ponder how and why people can be such dicks, but that conversation can be found all over the place. And anyway, stuff the Nazis. The kind of authority that does interest us at the moment, though, is not the authority of an institution or a figure. It is the authority of one's own moral code. As in, how does your moral code wield authority over your behavior? Most people have some sort of moral code, a set of rules and understanding that help us frame our decisions according to how we feel it is right to live. When we are born into a society, we grow up amongst a bunch of people who all have their own moral codes. This bunch of people, whomsoever they may be, have a huge influence in the development of each person's moral code. Today, the world is very closely linked, and this so-called bunch of people, i.e. the world around us, can be very diverse. We have access to a lot of sources and ideas from which to form our own individual moral codes, if we are to choose so. I know that this is all ridiculously obvious, but this story we've been telling about the unfortunate voyage of the Batavia is set in a time in Europe, the 1600s, when the moral code for individuals was very much church-defined. The bunch of people amidst whom one entered and engaged with the world, all had pretty much the same moral code that originated from and was defined by the same source, the church. And the church had one tool in particular that was used to mentally enforce in the mind of each person adherence to that moral code. And that tool was hell. I can't help but wonder what the weight of that would be. Every single person around you believing in hell and basing their moral code upon that. Every person around you imposing on themselves a moral code enforced by the fear of eternal suffering. But what if you took away the idea of hell from the mind of a 17th century European who lives in a world where the fear of hell is the morality enforcer for generally every person around. Not take away the idea of God or a divine power, but take away the idea of sin and damnation. Where would that leave you? That 17th century European would be forced to construct their own moral code from different and much less church-sanctioned sources. So imagine... What would it be like to live at this time and have to build your own moral code based upon something totally different to what 99% of the people around you base their own moral code on? Well, this 
This is what, at some point in his life, Geronimus Cornelison had to face. Because Geronimus, our smooth-talking and kind of sleazy under-merchant on the Batavia, does not believe in hell. What Geronimus believes is something fashioned in a forge of mixed, ancient, and, at the time, very heretical ideas that have all come into his life at various stages throughout. He believes that he is a perfect and divine being, and that every act of his is an act of God. There is no hell, there is no sin. No matter the atrocity of the act, if Geronimus does it, it is a godly one. In his own eyes, this man can do no wrong or bad thing. He is a 17th century man with authority over his own moral code. I just can't wait to see where that gets him. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me, Episode 4, Keep Your Eyes Open. This episode is brought to you by Tradewinds, which, like this podcast, are consistent and regular. Geronimus Cornelison was a well-educated man. His professional career, up until he became the under-merchant aboard the Batavia, had been as an apothecary a man who mixes and distributes medicines for those in need, with all the medical and scientific knowledge of the 1600s behind him. Which is to say, not fantastic medical and scientific knowledge behind him. When it comes to Geronimus's religious beliefs, much of what we think is a huge matter of mainly speculation and not much solid evidence. All we know for certain is the evidence of what would eventually result from those beliefs. It is reckoned that he was raised as an Anabaptist. Anabaptists are against infant baptism. They believe that an infant cannot, with full faith, choose Christ as their saviour, as they do not yet know all the secret passwords. Or is it codes? No. Secret handshakes? No. No, wait, sorry. It's that... Their mushy baby brains do not yet have the faculties to actually believe in and choose Jesus. You need logic to become a fully-fledged 16th century Protestant, and babies just don't have it. Therefore, one needs to be baptised as a fully functioning and decisive adult. Geronimus is actually on record as saying he had never been baptised. If this is true, the likelihood is that his parents chose for him not to be as an infant indicating that they were Anabaptists, and he himself then chose not to be baptised as an adult. Not being baptised at all, by the way, is one heretically bold move at this time. Certainly, the region where Geronimus grew up, Friesland, in the very northwest of the Republic, had a higher concentration of Anabaptists than the rest of the country. Many persecuted Anabaptists had fled here following the religious violence of the 16th century, and some heavyweights of austerity, men such as Menno Simons, after whom Mennonites are named, came from Friesland. So, if we imagine Geronimus to have grown up in an Anabaptist household, 
we can keep speculating further. Anabaptists came in all shapes and sizes. There could be those who passively followed the tenets of their beliefs and went about minding their own business. And there could be those who were more extreme and still sought the chance to resume the lost kingdoms of God that the Anabaptists of the 16th century had seen destroyed around them. Naturally, most people would sit somewhere in between this dichotomy. What level of extremism Geronimus may have been exposed to is impossible to know. However, any Anabaptist at the time was definitely accustomed to having ideas which went against the grain of the society. Anabaptists got used to being a thought minority. Maybe this background opened Geronimus up for far more heretical ideas later on. Possibly by growing up in an atmosphere that verged on heresy, the door was open for the most radical of ideas to let themselves in. Because eventually, he would develop a belief system that took in aspects of Gnosticism, Epicureanism, and something called Antinomianism, which is the idea in Christianity that those who are already saved are not bound to the law of Moses, or the moral code. Conveniently for Geronimus, he was obviously one just such saved, meaning that his actions were in fact those of God, therefore nothing but divine. It is thought that much of this far-out belief system developed during Geronimus's time in Harlem, where he moved in 1627 to open shop as a pharmacist. In Harlem, he became an acquaintance of the painter Johannes van der Beek, commonly known as Terentius. If you recall, this region was relatively tolerant of ideas that differed from the social norm, so long as one remained appropriately discreet about those ideas. Terentius, he was one of those people who did not remain discreet about his differing and very different ideas. They were very much ideas and actions that threatened social convention. He drank, slept around, made fun of Jesus loudly and publicly, divorced his wife, didn't pay alimony, amongst much else. He would end up in prison a couple of times, eventually being saved by the English King Charles I, who would persuade the Dutch to release Terentius to become his court painter. Terentius was known to operate in and amongst a circle of free-spirited people, who would meet in taverns and lounges to chat heresy. Geronimus, during his time in Harlem, is thought to have been one of these people. In Harlem, things were looking up for the young apothecary. His shop was open and he ran it with his young wife, herself a Mennonite, suggesting again that Geronimus was probably Anabaptist. His wife had a name... Here we go. Okay. Beleitchen? I might just call it Bell. I think that's easier. Bell soon fell pregnant, and the young couple had their whole lives ahead of them. Things would drastically change for the worse. Tragically, Bell became grievously ill about halfway through her pregnancy, managing to give birth but never recovering from the ordeal. She could not breastfeed, and so Geronimus, in a really, you know, well thought out act of God, appears to have decided to employ a local harlot to suckle his child. She was a woman renowned for her sexual proclivity. Not long after, the baby contracted syphilis and tragically died. 
This must have been such an absolutely awful thing to live through for he and Belle. Also, as syphilis is a sexually contracted disease, a dark social cloud was now cast over the married couple, with the implication being that one of the two must have been sleeping around. The issue went to court, caused a whole heap of social acrimony, including a scene where the wet nurse stood in front of his home, loudly yelling about how his bell was a pig and a whore riddled with syphilis. And somewhat because of this, his business now came to a standstill. Turns out nobody wants to get their medicine from the guy whose own baby died of syphilis. He went into massive debt as no customers were coming his way and eventually had to give over all of his possessions to his creditors. By mid-1628, he and his wife had lost everything. At around the same time, Terentius, the controversial painter with whom Geronimus was thought to associate, was tried for heresy and thrown in jail, with the authorities presumed to be preparing to pounce on his followers. So Geronimus... Broken and now possibly about to cop a load of authority from the state as a potential associate of Terentius, compounded the misery on his poor wife by abandoning her and leaving for Amsterdam to do the one thing that any desperate man in 17th century Holland could do. He went and joined the VOC. Being upper class and educated, he was quickly granted a position as second merchant in command and thus ended up on board the Batavia. He'd left it all behind, but he had brought his radical ideas with him. We watch him often, as he can usually be seen out on deck. He and the captain have become very close since Africa, and along with the captain's new mistress, Zvancha, they form a trio that is rarely apart. We haven't forgotten what we heard on the deck that last night at the Cape. When together, Geronimus and Jakobson mumbled treason and mutiny. We haven't spoken about it to anyone, not even Jan Pelgrim, our mate and fellow young sailor. It is too dangerous. And who would we go to? Pelsart? The upper merchant has not been seen since we departed, still laid up with whatever illness it is that he has. Lucretia is also rarely sighted, She still spends much time in the merchant's cabin, tending to his illness. The captain has not become quieter about that either. Whatever Lucretia is doing in Pelsart's tiny cabin, it is not helping her reputation. However, I can imagine it may also be the only place where she can escape to, away from the viciousness that is directed at her from Jakobson. Pelsart may be the highest official authority on this ship, but it is the captain who is exerting power and control at the moment. From the southern Cape of Africa, Batavia and the other ships in the VOC fleet head south towards what are known as the Roaring Forties, trade winds blowing eastward across the Indian Ocean, discovered by Dutch explorer Hendrik Brouwer in 1611, and the passage thereafter known as the Brouwer Route. Before Brouwer made his discovery, VOC ships heading from Africa to the East Indies took the so-called Cape Route, an arduous voyage which heads north up the east coast of Africa, between the continent and the island of Madagascar, before swinging east, and hopefully, 
making their way to the island of Ceylon, today's Sri Lanka. From there, they would head onwards to the Indies. This is a long and slow journey, but it had been used for centuries by Arab, Chinese, and other Asian merchants in their intercontinental trade. It was primarily used for safety's sake, since the route stayed close to land, but also for navigational reasons, it was a preferred route for many sailors to take. In the 21st century, it is easy to take for granted how damn useful it is to have a GPS. You could take a 21st century adult, put them on a ship in the middle of the ocean, and say, find our position on Earth. And provided they had a connection, of course, that person could and likely would just pull out their iPhone or their Galaxy, open Google Maps, zoom out enough, and be able to watch themselves as a little blue dot tracking across this pale blue dot. In the 17th century, though, we don't have the luxury of a network of satellites in space to help us navigate. So space is used in a different way. As you move south or north on the globe, stars which had previously been hidden by the horizon begin to appear in the sky. By using an instrument called an astrolabe, sailors are able to very precisely determine a ship's latitude, how far north or south they are on the globe. The big problem, however, is how to determine your position on an east-west longitude, or meridian. To precisely locate themselves at sea, firstly sailors need to keep track of the ship's speed, This they do using a knotted line being dragged behind the ship. The captain keeps track of the heading, the directional bearing of the ship, and a measurement is kept of time and how long the ship has been sailing. The first two variables alone aren't particularly accurate, but the third, the time, is measured on the Batavia by an hourglass, which is tipped every half an hour by the steersman. An hourglass on a rocking ship is about as accurate as a drunken sailor trying to hit the tow rag through the drop hole. As you can imagine, ships have routinely been known to misjudge their position by hundreds and sometimes even thousands of kilometers. It is therefore wise to spend as little time as possible in uncharted waters, where who knows what might suddenly appear out of the blue and wreck an unsuspecting ship. In terms of safety and assurance, from the tip of Africa it is a much better idea to take the Cape route north up the African coast, instead of eastwards into the great blue and mysterious beyond, where you can only judge your distance based on a rope and a shaky hourglass. The problem with the Cape route though is that it takes a really long time. An average journey to the Indies can take up to 12 months. The VOC... In a tone of ethics and care that would lay the standard for corporations for years to come, is always determined to find ways to make business more profitable. So when Brower discovered that it was possible to cut the travel time in half by heading southeast from the Cape of Good Hope, catch some gnarly winds, and then eventually swing north to the East Indies, the VOC put their mouth where their money was and commanded that all their ships were to use this route Henceforth, whilst this was a big step forward in terms of time saved and profit margins, there was one slight problem. Remember, 
it's extremely difficult to know where you are east-west on the globe. When you're in the middle of nowhere in the southern Indian Ocean, there are only a couple of tiny islands to use as landmarks along the way to help determine the precise moment at which to turn north. In 1616, a guy called Dirk Hartog tried out the Brower's route but made his turn a bit later than Brower had and so came across a group of small islands. Upon visiting the main one, he found nothing of interest to him there, but he left behind a pewter plate with an inscription on it to mark the occasion, and he named the area Eindruxland, after his ship. As he continued north, he discovered that the island was in fact on the edge of a huge continent, a barren, dusty, dry, red wasteland which plunged into the sea in sheer cliff faces. There was barely a sign of local people with whom to trade, the most important thing for Dutch explorers to discover. So after making some sketches of the coast for his nautical charts, he left the continent behind and continued to Batavia. He named the newfound continent in typical straightforward Dutch style, Het Zoudland, the Southland. The land's name today still means exactly this, but from the Latinized version, Terra Australis, Australia, the Great Southern Land. The island that Hartog stepped foot on is in present-day Shark Bay, Western Australia. The pewter plate he left there is the oldest known artifact of European exploration of that continent. Dutch explorers now knew that if they were to travel too far to the east when using the Brower route across the Indian Ocean, they ran the risk of smashing straight into this foreboding south land. In 1619, another Dutch explorer, Frederick de Houtman, also reached equally forbidding coasts nearby present-day Fremantle, much further south from where Hartog had first come across Hetzeudland. Luckily for de Houtman, as they'd been heading east and waiting to guess the moment they must turn north, the crew sighted land a few hours before sunset. They had enough time to be able to turn the ship away from danger, then over the next few days slowly explore north up the coastline to map out this uncharted area. A week later, on the 29th of June, 1619, they were heading north with Hetzaldland just out of sight, when a shout suddenly rang out that there were breakers ahead. As he would record in his journal, they, quote, unexpectedly came upon a low-lying coast, a level, broken country with reefs all around it, end quote. These islands were 10 miles in length, and the treacherous swells between them could easily have sunk the ship, had the crew not been paying careful attention to their whereabouts. Hauptmann, recognized the danger in islands like these to sea traffic, so he took note of the danger, and he marked the position as accurately as he could. He wrote, quote, We saw no high land or mainland, so that this shoal is to be carefully avoided as very dangerous to ships that wish to touch at this coast. It is fully 10 miles in length, lying in 28 degrees 46 minutes south, end quote. He gave the islands the name Hautmans Abrolhos. Abrolhos comes from the Portuguese Abri Olhos. Keep your eyes open. To our Portuguese listeners, I'm really, really sorry for yet again 
butchering your language. If you hang around until the very end of the show, we're going to try and rectify this with a real Portuguese person. Quite why Hauptmann decided on the name Abrolhos is a mystery, but it has been suggested that Abrolhos was a Portuguese maritime term borrowed by the Dutch. Whatever the case may be, it was a warning. Keep your eyes open. Despite the danger that Het Zuidland posed to ships which strayed too far east, the lure of quicker profits proved irresistible to the VOC. With their wallets growing ever fatter from the lucrative Asian trade, the Brower's route was deemed a risk worth taking. All you needed was a captain who paid close attention to his ship's speed, heading, and how long they'd been sailing, in order to guesstimate when to turn north. You just needed a captain doing the business of captaining, combined with a little pinch of luck. Captain Jakobson, however, is a very distracted man. We hit a storm five days out of the Cape. Like the one that we had endured off the coast of Holland, here we are once again battling for hour after hour to keep the ship under control. When finally it clears, we discover that we have lost sight of the other ships in the fleet going against the orders of the VOC that every ship remain in touch with each other across the Indian Ocean. The way that this is managed, particularly at night, is by having a wind-shielded and brightly burning torch at the very stern of the ship. The day following the storm, we learnt that our torch had somehow become extinguished. The other ships had lost sight of us. Learning this, we remember again the captain's words to Geronimus back in the Cape Harbour. I soon will be away from the other ships, and then I shall be my own master. Surely it cannot be a mere coincidence. For around a fortnight, actually, Jakobson has been the only master of this ship. After the Cape, Pelsart fell gravely ill once again. Surely he must die as this ship is pretty much the last place on earth suited to the ill. The ship's surgeon and barber, a guy called Franz Janson, has apparently even started giving Pelsart something called smoke enemas. Now this, this involves inserting a tobacco smoke filled bladder made from pig guts and attached to a syringe into Pelsart's anus and then blowing the smoke into his rectum to try to loosen his bowels. That's right. The doctor has been literally blowing smoke up Pelsart's ass. Surprisingly though, and who knows to say whether it's because of this, Pelsart's actually started to reappear on the deck in his ridiculous red overcoat, looking better than previously, but still just as haughty we start to notice strange behaviour occurring amongst our crewmates. We are so used to having Jan Pelgrim around, chatting, playing tic-tac, and generally being in each other's company, that we feel a bit left out when he starts to spend much more time in the company of some of the older sailors, including our direct commander, the High Bosson, a man named Jan Evertsen. In off-duty hours, this small group can now often be seen huddled together over their ales, talking quietly. Yanni's always with them, or at least 
He's buzzing around them, not quite included, but obviously trying to be so. We begin to miss our little mate. He obviously misses us too, though, as three weeks after leaving the Cape, he comes and sits down next to us on the gun deck, near our sleeping area. Jan begins to talk about Pelsa, the upper merchant, and how useless he is. He starts to go on about how cruel and greedy the upper merchant is, and he asks whether we agree. We do agree that he's kind of useless, just sitting in his bed all day, but he's never particularly struck us as cruel. Jan then moves on to talking about Geronimus, and now his eyes light up. Geronimus is, according to Jan, a great man who should actually be in charge of the ship. Jan was given the job early on in the journey of attending to the lower merchant as a cabin boy. Through all the time Jan has spent with Geronimus, you can see that he greatly respects the older man. Before he leaves to go back to duty, Jan looks at us seriously and becomes more animated in what he is saying. But don't worry. Soon everybody will see what a corrupt and pompous ass Pelsart is. Everyone will witness his cruelty and that he cares more for the silver in the hold than for any of us sailors. With that, he stands up, spits over the edge of the ship, and walks away towards Geronimus's quarters. We wonder, what on earth was that all about? That night, it all begins to make a bit more sense. We lay on the squalid floor of the gun deck, drifting between a restless sleep and the dense odour of hundreds of other restless and unwashed men. Eventually, any hope of more sleep eludes us, and we decide to go up to the main deck for some fresh air and to use the drop hole. Outside, the wind is holding in the sails, pushing us onwards with gusto, The ship rides the waves, constantly going up and coming down. Sitting on the drop hole, contemplating the tow rag, the sound of sobbing now reaches our ears. At first we are uncertain, but listening more carefully, it is definitely sobbing. We finish up our business and scan the darkness until we can just make out a huddled figure on the deck in the corner. We walk over towards it, but begin to gag as an unspeakably foul odour emanates from this pathetic creature whimpering in front of us. It barely looks human, smeared from head to toe in what is unmistakably shit. Plus, we realise the minute we crouch and touch the figure's shoulder, what seems to be pitch, the extremely dense and sticky substance used to waterproof the ship. Despite this disgusting outer layer, however, our eyes have now adjusted enough to the darkness that we can recognise the smatterings of the figure's long blonde hair. It's Lucretia Yarns. She is an absolute mess before us. For what feels like eternity, we stand there and awkwardly look at her as we assess this situation. If we are found with her in this state, we might be the one blamed for it. We consider just leaving her be, this high-class woman covered in fecal matter and tree sap. But our conscience gets the better of us, and so we help her to her feet, and once standing, we usher her quickly back to the main deck and towards the passenger cabins. On the way, however, between her choked, whimpering sobs, 
we hear her say, Francisco, take me to the commander. She wants Pelsart, the upper merchant, and so we oblige, changing direction and heading down one deck towards his quarters, next to the great cabin. We knock on the door, the blubbering mess of Lucretia leaning against us, still smelling awful. The shit and pitch all over her has now attached itself to us as well, just to make this situation even more wonderful. There is movement behind the door, and it soon opens with Pelsart's face emerging from behind. He is looking noticeably better, we think. His eyes have gone straight to Lucretia, however, who has stopped sobbing but is still trembling. Those eyes widen in shock and surprise, and he leans further out the door, surveying to our left and right, before grabbing her arm and pulling her into his cabin. Boy! He hisses at us, and tells us to get an ember from the galley, so as to light a candle, and also to fetch a bucket of water. And don't say anything to anyone! We scurry off quickly to do his bidding. When we return, and now that there is light in the room, Pelsart closes the door, and without paying any attention to us, seizes Lucretia, and demands to know who did this to her. She has calmed down somewhat, and quietly says that it was a group, none of whom she could identify. Apparently, they had grabbed her in the dark, up on the deck, and went about simply terrifying her. It seemed like each one had participated in smearing the shit and the pitch all over her. They had lifted her up, and hung her over the railing, flailing above the crashing surf below, all the while holding her mouth shut so she could not scream. Recounting this to Pelsart, she begins to sob again and puts her face in her hands before telling him that one of them had molested her by grabbing her between the legs. This is shocking to the upper merchant and to ourselves. To hear of a woman being treated as such. Yes, that's right. Even we, as a low-class peasant sailor in the 1600s, can identify that molesting a woman is a violation and against the moral code. That's obvious. You don't need to be the president to know it. Pelsart begins to pace, well as much as is possible in his quarters, which are about half the size of the great cabin. We are standing in the corner, as Lucretia uses the water in the bucket to begin cleaning herself. She has no servant to do it for her, as her servant is, at the moment, in the captain's bed. She is clearly embarrassed to have to do this in front of Pelsard, but he is paying her modesty little heed. Do you remember anything about them? Were they young, old, officers or sailors? He asks her. She looks up at him from the bucket which she is crouched over, and tells him that she thinks she recognised one of the voices of the man who seemed to be leading the group. She thinks it was the voice of Jan Evertsson, the high bosun and the man to whom each sailor answers. He is the one who grants permission, settles disputes, and enacts punishment upon the sailors. Lucretia is certain that it was him. Pelsart swears this news is not good. Jan Evertsson answers directly to the captain. Pelsart reckons now that there is much more to this than just a little bit of sailor savagery as Lucretia was not just attacked, but deliberately humiliated. His mind works over as he tries to make sense of it all. It must, he decides, 
be that this is an attempt by the captain to get at him through Lucretia, and that Jakobson is trying to trick him into retaliation. Jakobson knows that such a crime cannot go unpunished, but if all the perpetrators remain unidentified, then Pelsart will have no choice but to punish the whole crew. What better way to unite the crew against the upper merchant? The captain must be punished too, and so will suffer with the crew. As all of this is dawning on Pelsart, he is quiet, fist-clenched, and staring at the wall. Suddenly, though, with the full realisation of what is afoot, he turns around and looks squarely at us, trying to hide away from it all in the corner. Through cracked lips, he almost asks us a question. Mutiny? We don't know what to say or even why we are still there. Lucretia is still crouched over the bucket, scrubbing furiously at the dense and sticky resin on her arms. Pelsat is glaring at us, and now directly asks if there is a mutiny being planned. We say that we don't know, as we really don't. Okay, maybe we heard that one thing on the deck in the cape, when the captain was venting his anger. And maybe we did lose the other ships after he had threatened just such a thing. Perhaps Jan had been saying something about Geronimus needing to be in charge of the ship, and that Pelsart would soon show how cruel he was. Actually, they are some pretty serious puzzle pieces right there, but we don't really know for sure details of any plot or plan. And anyway, snitches get stitches, and there ain't no way we're going to dob in Jan or anyone else, even if it is the upper merchant who is demanding it of us. We insist that we have no idea of anything, Please, sir, we just stick to ourselves, minding our own business. Pelsart grabs us and pushes us into the closed door, telling us to get back with the rest of our fellow scum on the gun deck. This we very quickly do, trying to be as unnoticeable as possible finding our sleeping patch, crawling up into the sticky, smelly, itchy and sore ball that we are, closing our eyes and pondering what on earth was going to happen next. We wake up the next morning and there is definitely a strange vibe to the ship, like a hushed expectancy on the gun deck. Jan is overeating breakfast by his new group of acquaintances. A bell rings and he springs up as the officers and the merchants, including Geronimus, have called for their breakfast. We scan our fellow sailors as we sit over our warm oat slops. We have heard snatches of conversation and every single one of them is talking about the attack on Lucretia. We have no idea how this is possible, as we are the only ones who found her, and we said nothing to anybody. The sailors mostly seem to be sitting in groups of varying sizes, and certainly more than a few keep casting glances to the hatch leading up towards the great cabin and Pelsart's quarters. Or is that just our imagination? Once breakfast is done, We are on duty with whatever needs fixing, repairing, upkeep, cleaning, fetching, hauling, or any other such task. We all go about it, but there is a considerable yet subdued chatter amongst the men. About mid-morning, however, the chatter stops. The door leading to the great cabin is open, and Pelsard climbs up and onto the top deck. He stands in the middle, looking around at the sailors surrounding him. The captain is in the bridge, staring with bright eyes. We think to ourselves that this is it. Pelsart is going to announce what his investigation into Lucretia's attack has determined, 
and he's going to mete out the punishment. Whether the punishment will be unto Jan Avertson, the high bosun and the first mate of the captain, or unto the captain himself, or perhaps upon the whole crew, is the only thing that we are not certain of. Pelsart, however, does precisely nothing. He glares contemptuously at all of us, lingering for a particularly long time on the captain, and with a huff, he walks back to the door from whence he'd come and disappears down below the poop deck. There is an unbelieving silence aboard, or so it seems, as if everybody had expected the same as us, trial, sentencing, and punishment. Pelsar could not do it. Perhaps he just lost his nerve at the prospect of being one man, supposed to inflict punishment on any one of a group of 200 much harder men out in the middle of the ocean. Who can blame him? He has probably saved his life, however, as if there is a mutiny being plotted, and if the aim is to instigate rebellion against the upper merchant by tricking him into collectively and perhaps violently punishing all of the sailors, then he did not fall for the trick. Had he fallen for it, had he inflicted such punishment, and had the crew been incited by the captain, the high bosun, or perhaps even Geronimus, the lower merchant, to rise against him, Pelsart would definitely be in the ocean right now, probably being torn apart by the hundreds of sharks that tend to follow our ship. As it is, though, he retires to his cabin, aware that he likely now stands alone against this ship full of blackguards. If, as he fears, those blackguards have organized themselves against him, there is not much he will be able to do ultimately to stop the crew from taking the ship and all of its massive load of silver and disappearing off into the sunset to become pirates of fortune. Yar. All this, including the yar, Pelsart would have contemplated hour after hour for days and weeks after the Lucretia incident. At one stage, as we sit on our sleeping mat, scratching some scabs on our legs, we are thinking about Pelsart in this exact situation. We still don't know for sure if there is a mutiny, but the evidence is pretty high, and at least the crew seems to have positioned itself behind our captain, even if nothing's been said. The captain and Geronimus are certainly close. Pelsart wields effectively zero actual influence on the ship, despite his supposed supreme authority. It is dark now, and the evening is moving towards morning, and we continue to ponder all of this. Again, we scan our eyes across the gun deck at the dark huddled masses of filthy salt-stained men. The boat lifts, and we lift off it slightly as the great bow comes slamming down into the water, over and over. The night is clear. Earlier, we had seen Jakobson take his position on the bridge. A few days ago, we made the turn to port and started heading north, northeast, towards the fort at Batavia. As the captain took up his duty on the dog watch, the nighttime lookout, he had seemed a relaxed and happy man. The trip is in its last leg. So far, we have survived. But we also have years ahead of us in the Indies, living in these and even more squalid conditions. At least we get three meals a day. Our thoughts begin to submerge with our subconscious, 
as it rises to take over control of our mind. We are drifting to sleep, in rhythm with the crashing of the waves against the hull. And suddenly we are in a nightmare. The deck below us stops, but our inertia continues, throwing us forward, slamming us into yarn and the hull of the ship. The sound of giant pieces of wood splintering like twigs echoes around and through us. Men scream. Debris flies like pieces of shrapnel through the air. The sailor in the hammock above us lands on top of us, knocking the wind out of our lungs. Wood and flesh is everywhere, and the floor is tilting like never before. Ropes, pulleys, pans, steel rods, tongs, plates, and all the other shit lying around the gun deck starts to fall towards the stern of the ship. It is all happening in slow motion, so we manage to grab onto a metal cleat fastened to the hull. The giant cannons have come loose now and start rolling down the deck. We see the terrified look in one sailor's face as for an instant he recognises his fate before his head is crushed underneath the unstoppable momentum of a cannon, his brains oozing out of his head. Something has gone terribly wrong. Someone did not heed the warning of the Portuguese sailors. Abre vossos olhos. Keep your eyes open. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Stuff What You Tell Me. This journey so far has been difficult, but that pales in comparison to what is about to happen next. This mutinous ship is going down, but who is going to take command when all hell breaks loose? We'll find out in the next episode. In the meantime, we'd like to thank all of you for listening to our podcast. But a special thanks goes out to Kyle Richo Richo Buckland, the ninth best bearded man in the world. A massive thank you to Kyle and a massive thank you to your magnificent beard. If you want to be like Kyle but don't have such great beard growing facilities, you can also help spread the resistance by writing a five star review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. It really helps us and only takes a few minutes. If you don't want to, then stuff you. Check out our website at www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com for some extra videos we made when we visited the replica of Batavia in Lelystad, the Netherlands. Is there something you'd like an episode to be brought to you by? Give us your suggestions on our social media. You can find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash stuffwhatyoutellme or find us on Twitter at the Stuff You Team. Email us at standup at stuffwhatyoutellme.com or send a messenger pigeon to 52 degrees, 21 minutes north, 4 degrees, 55 minutes east. Finally, we promised earlier that we would rectify our poor Portuguese pronunciation with a real-life Portuguese person. Unfortunately, we don't know any real-life Portuguese people, and we doubt they actually exist. If you're a Portuguese person and you disagree, contact us on Facebook. Anyway, we did find a Dutchman who grew up in Portugal, so here's everything we mispronounced last episode, Mispronounced just a little bit better. Bartolomeu Dias, Vasco da Gama, Volto do Mar, Cabo das Tormentas, Cabo da Boa Esperança. Nós viemos buscar os cristãos e as especiarias. Música